Welcome to Breaking Green, a podcast by Global Justice Ecology Project. On Breaking Green, we will talk with activists and experts to examine the intertwined issues of social, ecological, and economic injustice. We will also explore some of the more outrageous proposals to address climate and environmental crises that are falsely being sold as green. I am your host, Steve Taylor. A bill recently signed by President Joe Biden, the Inflation Reduction Act, is being heralded by many environmental groups as a major victory in the fight against global warming. But the bill has provoked criticism that it funds harmful false solutions and that environmental justice organizations, communities that they represent, and their concerns were ignored as the $360 billion deal was made. In this episode of Breaking Green, we will talk with Anthony Karifa Rogers-Wright. Anthony publicly resigned from the board of Evergreen Action, a group whose stated mission is to build an all-out national mobilization to defeat the climate crisis. In his notice of resignation, Anthony noted Evergreen Action's failure to properly involve or communicate with environmental justice communities during critical phases of creating and passing the Inflation Reduction Act. He says that those left out of the process by the bigger, largely white-driven environmental groups are those that will be most directly impacted by the fossil fuel, false solutions, increased mining, and other extractive provisions contained in the bill. Anthony serves as the Director of Environmental Justice for the group New York Lawyers for the Public Interest. He also served as the Policy Coordinator and Green New Deal Policy Lead with the Climate Justice Alliance. Anthony also led the effort to make the former Colorado Health Insurance Cooperative the first health insurance provider in the state's history to remove transgender exclusions in 2012. He worked as a policy advisor for Senator Elizabeth Warren's presidential campaign in 2020, as well as Senator Bernie Sanders' presidential campaigns of 2016 and 2020. He also serves on the board of directors of Friends of the Earth, The Backbone Campaign, and the Center for Sustainable Economy. Anthony Karifa Rogers-Wright, welcome to Breaking Green. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be with you. The Inflation Reduction Act, at the time of this recording, was signed yesterday by President Joe Biden. It is being celebrated by many environmental groups as a win in the fight against climate change. One of those groups is Evergreen Action. But days after Congress passed the bill and before the president signed it, you wrote what is in essence an open letter about your decision to resign from Evergreen Action's board. What is Evergreen Action and why did you resign from its board and what does it have to do with the Inflation Reduction Act? Yeah, well, you know, I really appreciate that question. Um, Evergreen Action is about um, uh, a little more than two years old. Uh, they were formed um, uh, from the uh, the aftermath of the uh, Jay Inslee, Governor Jay Inslee, but then uh, candidate for president Jay Inslee, um, formed by many of his advisors, who are who I would say are very smart people, dedicated people, and um, formed Evergreen Action to continue um, the development of uh, climate policy. And also um, ensuring that uh, the the Congress, the Senate, um, and the President um, were implementing um, environmental policies that would increase climate justice and get us on track with um, you know the goals of the uh, Paris <clears throat> uh, COP21 agreement, 
that was back in um, what, like 2015. And so that's, you know, that's, that's, that's basically why they were formed. Um, you know, it, it is, it is a, histo- what many refer to as a historically white led organization. Um, I, I do think that um, they did well to um, assemble a, a talented, uh, you know, board advisory board of directors, um, formerly including myself, but, but, but many others who I still, you know, love and cherish and respect. Um, I, I think that un- unfortunately, um, as it pertained to the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, it's not just, you know, what's in the bill itself. It's the process that led to the bill. And um, we saw, a con- I saw a continuation, I should say, of what many in the environmental justice uh, movement and climate justice movement have been speaking about for years since, you know, way back in 1990, when um, Richard Moore, who, of course, now is one of the co-chairs of the president's White House Environmental Justice Advisory um, a- a Committee, um, <clears throat> helped pen a letter to uh, the so-called Group of Ten, which included groups like um, EDF and NRDC, Sierra Club, and others, you know, really pressing them and saying, hey, the way that you're operating, you know, is is actually in, in a very racist fashion. You know, um, it's very paternalistic. It's very top down. Um, you are uh, really taking in all of the resources, like 2% of the groups are controlling 98% of the wealth. 98% of the groups are expected to control 2% of the wealth. And this is preventing us from being an actual movement. This is preventing us from getting the type of policies that we need to um, not just protect, you know, parks and recreation for affluent white people, but the public health, literally, of black, brown, um, indigenous, uh, and poor white and Asian people as well. Um, the way that the Inflation Reduction Act went down, um, and, and the way I believe Evergreen um, acted along with one of their advisors, uh, Dr. Stokes, was antithetical to the principles of environmental justice and antithetical to the 1996 Hamas Principles for Democratic Organizing. Despite lots of commitments from Evergreen and groups, I, I, I would argue it's not just Evergreen. Um, a lot of groups, you know, especially in the wake of the the, the racial awakening or, or you know, part-time uh, or um, ephemeral racial reckoning, we'll call it, in the United States, following the lynchings of, of, of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey and, and others, you know, there are a lot of commitments that were made. There are a lot of public statements or a lot of proclamations that, um, quite frankly, were not exercised, you know, they were not lived up to um, based on the reactions of, um, you know, as I said, very prematurely rhapsodic um, press statements that literally, you know, would say, yeah, we know there are some bad things, but, you know, and by saying, but you're, you're actually promoting the sacrifice of, of communities that have are, that are already bearing the brunt, disproportionate brunt of the climate crisis, they had little hand in creating. And these are communities in the Gulf South of Mexico, including the United Home Nation, poor black people, poor white people, um, poor white people in Appalachia, and then um, throughout so-called Indian country. And I, I just, you know, I, I could not allow myself to be associated with that. As I said in my resignation letter, I'm on other boards of directors. And the way that they operated was just so much different. Like they were not rushing to release a press statement to promote themselves. Really, you know, what they were rushing to do was to make sure that they spoke with people in the EJ community before releasing a press statement so they could release an informed uh, a press statement. And that that's, you know, one of those organizations that I sit on the board of is Friends of the Earth. Um, we went through a, a really rigorous process before releasing a statement. 
um, and our president, um, Eric Pica, you know, was adamant ab- about that. And so just that juxtaposition made that decision to for, for me to step down from Evergreen, you know, all the easier. I, I would add that in that 1990 uh, letter that I referenced, Friends of the Earth was actually one of the organizations that was included in that letter. And I so I, I know it's possible to improve because they have and they've demonstrated that. And um, unfortunately, other organizations, including Evergreen, have not, which just goes to show you, in my opinion, that it's not so much about the how as much as it is about the will to actually exercise the how. Well, there were a lot of groups and there are a lot of groups that just, uh, you know, are heralding the achievements, uh, as you say, rhapsodic about what they perceive as the achievements in this bill. And, and I think this there's there's two issues that really jumped out at me with with your letter. One was uh, not wanting, I think you referenced tokenism, uh, and I think you, you definitely referenced the process, but also what what is in the bill. And you mentioned frontline communities or communities that are going to bear the brunt. So um, let's talk a little bit about what's in the bill. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, I mean, we have what I call the fossil fuel quid pro quo clause, um, which is essentially saying that there can be no approval of renewable energy projects, including offshore wind and on large scale onshore solar until there are offshore um, oil and gas leases in the Gulf of Mexico um, of, of 60 million acres a year for the next 10 years. So, I mean, right there, you know, to me, that disqualifies the Inflation Reduction Act from being referred to as a climate bill. Um, the, the, the idea, you know, wh- you know, where where I do a lot of my work is in, in New York State and New York City. We, we have, um, you know, massive um, aspirations for more offshore wind, right? You, you know, our, uh, Governor Hochul announced $500 million to be invested in offshore wind in the New York Bight, which is, you know, just off the coast of Long Island. And so ipso facto, in order for us to continue to press for more offshore wind and onshore solo uh, or solar, we have to like kind of root for there to be more offshore oil and gas leasing in the Gulf of Mexico. And that's not that's not how we roll in New York. Right. That's not how environmental justice and climate justice practitioners roll in New York. We don't, you know, um, sacrifice another community you know, for the betterment of our community, that, that, that just like, you know, that, that, that can't happen. That's not climate justice. And, and we know a lot of the people who live, you know, full time in the Gulf, you know, I, I'm probably um, in New Orleans at least eight to 10 times a year visiting friends and family. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sell them out so that, you know, we can have renewable energy in New York. So, so, you know, that, that first and foremost, I think, you know, disqualified it. We also have uh, tons of, of tax breaks and investments in um, profligate and unproven uh, what we refer to as false solutions, like so-called carbon capture and sequestration. We've got to talk about this so-called technology because it's it's it simply doesn't work. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's like the coal fusion for for the fossil fuel industry. Um, even uh, uh, President Trump's Department of Energy concluded that carbon capture and sequestration was not economically viable and. Um, I believe at this point, all of the carbon capture projects that were once put online by the federal government are offline. They're not work- they're, they're, they're not even working anymore. Some got pulled because they were too expensive. Some um, broke down altogether. You know, we saw in Yazoo County, Mississippi, which is a, a majority black community, 
a, a, a carbon dioxide pipeline associated with a carbon capture plant exploded um, when the um, EMTs got to the site. They, they described it as a zombie, seeing people passed out in their cars, you know, with this green plume like over, over the community. So it's so it's very very dangerous, and and we've already given so much money to carbon capture sequestration as part of the bipartisan infrastructure framework that the president signed um, earlier this year. So um, we are doubling, tripling, and quadrupling down on a uh, technology which the majority of so-called captured carbon is utilized for is a process called enhanced oil recovery, which we may as well refer to it as what it really is. It's fracking, right? That's using carbon dioxide to extract more oil and gas, which which leads to more emissions. Um, so so that, that's another disqualifier, in, in my opinion, of referring to the uh, Inflation Reduction Act as a piece of climate policy. That, that that's, it's, it's, you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again, referring to this bill as climate policy would be like referring to Joe Arpaio as a abolitionist, prison abolitionist, because he had outdoor jail cells. You know, I, I mean, it, it's just un, unheard of to me. Um, we also have an expansion of, of the lifeline for nuclear power plants. Um, this, like, of course, uh, uh, produces more waste that is, uh, uh, you know, most of the time uh, situated in indigenous, sovereign indigenous territories in the Southwest. Um, and, and of course, this would lead to more uranium mining. Um, everyone talks about the uh, Flint water crisis, as we should, um, but least uh, discussed is the water crisis that the Diné tribe in, in Arizona has been facing for years, having to have water uh, shipped in because um, their uh, water supplies have been tainted um, 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 by uranium mining. And then, you know, uh, on the subject of mining, there is more mining that has opened up uh, for critical minerals, um, for solar panels, for wind turbines. And that puts, that may be necessary, but that was uh, uh, those these decisions were made without the free prior and informed consent of of indigenous people. And and again, like we're we're not in the business as environmental justice practitioners of selling out and sacrificing one population so that another population can enjoy. Uh, um, you know, comfort and have uh, clean air and cool homes and warm homes at the expense of other people. It, it's that that is that is not climate justice. You know that that is antithetical to climate justice. And and those are just a few of the provisions. The last thing I'll say is that um, there are provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act that already are going to have a negative effect on longstanding environmental laws, like the National Environmental Policy Act. Um, it ostensibly says we are investing a billion dollars to improve NEPA. But again, from whose vantage point, right? Beauty and improvement are in the eye of the beholder. In this case, it's an improvement for the fossil fuel industry and polluters because that billion dollars is specifically uh, dedicated to a specific type of environmental review called programmatic environmental reviews, which are not as specific. They're very broad, cover uh, large swaths of geography to allow for networks of, say, pipelines in the fossil fuel variety or uh, carbon dioxide pipelines associated with carbon capture sequestration. So what what we have here is is a, is a formula for for climate catastrophe. So um, when people say like you know this is the biggest deal, it, it's it's climate history. I say it's more of a climate mystery because it's a mystery to me that people can refer to this as a climate bill, and that that goes for for, for uh, liberals as well as progressives. And 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 it's really um, why I'm appreciative to you for for having me on your show because um, what we have right now is a very nefarious narrative. 
um, that that this is a good thing, that there are all these investments, you know, um, $60 billion in environmental justice investments. My dear sister and friend, Tara Hauska, um, a, a frontline indigenous warrior and attorney, was on Amy Goodman's show, uh, Democracy Now! And she said, you know, first of all, we, we're not seeing that they add up to $60 billion. Right. First of all, like some 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 groups are using the tax credits for um, electric vehicles and referring to that as an environmental justice investment. But if you look at the industry and what it says, it says our consumers for electric vehicles are typically white men between the ages of 40 and 55 who earn over one hundred thousand dollars a year and have a college degree or higher. I, I, I maybe I'm I'm missing something. I don't think that that. It really is a typical environmental justice demographic, um, but, but I could be wrong. And then, you know, to Tara's other point was, and what's the point of these investments If all we're going to be doing is using them to prevent the harms that this act, um, what would be unleashing and proliferating via all the things that I just named, and especially um, all of that oil and gas uh, uh, dr- drilling and leasing. So um, that's that, that's just a snapshot of, of what's in the bill. We're, it, it, the more we read, the more sort of like um, fine print we're finding out, right? There's $75 million, for instance, that is supposedly dedicated to, to the tribes, right? 75 million, a whopping $75 million for over 500 federally recognized tribes whose lands were stolen, whose women are going missing and murdered because of fossil fuel projects. Here's $75 million for y'all all to split up. Um, that, that is, that is insulting. And, and here's the kicker though. What makes it more insulting is that prior to any of that money even getting to the tribes, it has to have prior and written approval by the president of the United States. And, 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 and I, 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 whether the Democrat or Republican, I've not seen too many presidents rushing to ensure that we, um, um, hold, uphold the treaties that we've made with the original people of, of the so-called, of the present day United States. And let's say it's not a President Biden. Let's say it's a President Trump or a President DeSantis. They're, they're not going to be like signing up this money over, um, um, in an equitable way to, um, federally recognized tribes. So, Again, we have nefarious narratives. We have narratives that I don't think are as voracious as, as they should be. And, and it's something that we really have to get a hold of because narratives can, can impact people just like fossil fuel pipelines can in that, like, you know, it, it's all rooted in a lack of truth, right? We, we know that these fossil fuel companies have been lying since the 1970s when they knew what their products were doing to the atmosphere. And we know that the narratives that they've been peddling have had impacts on frontline communities for years as well. This is your host, Steve Taylor, and we will be back right after this. Global Justice Ecology Project partners with small nonprofits when a group or organization whose non-for-profit work closely aligns with our mission by becoming a fiscal sponsor. This helps them minimize bureaucracy so they can focus on their crucial work for ecological and social justice, forest protection, and human rights. GJEP is proud to sponsor Save the Pine Barrens, Save the Pine Barrens advocates for accountability and transparency as a route to raise awareness and educate the community about what it takes to make change happen. They are working to save the Atlantic coastal pine barrens from mining and industrial development. Also known as pitch pine or scrub oak barrens, pine barrens are a globally rare habitat type with Massachusetts supporting the third largest example in the world behind New Jersey and Long Island. Protection of Barron's habitat will also help protect the recharge area for the largest groundwater reserve in the state. To learn more, go to savethepinebarrens.org. Welcome back to Breaking Green. So let's talk a little bit about the process 
that you were concerned about. Uh, you, you you definitely uh, mentioned a consultant, I believe, Dr. Stokes. Uh, and I'm not saying that she was the figure. Let's not Let's not demonize Doctor Stokes. Absolutely, but not. you seem you 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 seem to uh, mention her and her work and how that seemed to be a disconnect uh, between the mission, the stated mission of of Evergreen Action, and what was actually happening. I guess in the negotiations are are in this process of coming up with a response to climate change, which is becoming ever and ever more critical. It's, it's a crisis. You know, I, I'm sure you agree mm-hmm. we're in a crisis situation in large part because the industry that that's now allowed such access or has such access to the deals have, have been, have been dissembling and distracting about this for, for decades. So what about the process did you find disturbing when it came to the aspects of environmental justice and representation of communities? Are, are those who would actually call out these false solutions? You know, I mean, again, you know, environmental justice groups that are not as uh, uh, resourced or funded or don't have as many staffers as the so-called mainstream environmental groups are literally like on page 20, page 30, you know, and, and all of these statements are coming out, not just from Evergreen, groups like Sierra Club, you know, NRDC, um, EDF. This is historic. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened. And look at all the great stuff for environmental justice. Um, it seems like they were in the know. Um, and and before these uh, under-resourced groups where commitments have been made in the past of like, okay, we're not going to take a position on a bill until, you know, we have been, uh, uh, it's been demonstrated to us that the environmental justice community has had an opportunity to weigh in, an opportunity to review and 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 if they're, you know, in some cases list and, and catalog their concerns. There have been commitments to we're going to follow the Hamas principles for democratic organizing, which includes commitments to self-transformation, commitments to bottom-up organizing, commitments to letting people speak for themselves. Um, and all of these commitments were broken. Um, it's a, it's a to Dr. Stokes um, in, in many cases on, on, on shows, TV shows and, and other um, uh, mediums that she has been on to promote this bill. She's been referred to as an architect of the bill and, and uh, she has not taken umbrage with that sobriquet. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm assuming and that, that therefore you, you embrace that, that, um, that, that, that moniker and um, which, which, which would indicate you knew something. There are some reports saying um, it was an hour or two that some groups were made privy to what was coming out. Okay, like you had, yeah, you, that means you also had two hours to aware, um, you know, base building organizations like the Climate Justice Alliance, Global, Global Grassroots Justice, um, you know, groups like We Act. Um, I, I mean, in some cases, y'all are working in formation with some of these organizations, right? There's the Equitable Just and National Climate uh, uh, Platform. We act as a member of that. So is Center for American Progress. So is Evergreen. So is League of Conservation Voters. So is Sierra Club. So you're, you're not even sharing information with people that you're in coalition with? What kind of coalition is that? <laughs> you know, um, uh, uh, FDR, Stalin, and, and um, uh, Churchill shared information with each other more than some of these big greens are with um, their so-called environmental justice partners. And that's what I, that's what, you know, where, where it comes down to this idea of tokenization. If you're just going to create like a, 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 a coalition with environmental justice groups for cosmetic reasons, 
that, that's just that 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 is wrong and is immoral and and it must be exposed and 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 and, and, and you know it has to cease because um you can't just use the names of organizations and the faces of the people who make up those organizations and then say therefore we are practicing environmental justice environmental justice is is not a rhetorical or cosmetic exercise it's a, it's a, it's an exercise of processes right it's a, it's an exercise of 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 synergy, of collaboration, you know, of transparency. And that's not what happened in this case. Um, and, and again, I, I mean, all these groups, after they had learned, like, look, like, maybe there are some good things in, in this bill, but the way that you're celebrating it is still harmful to us. It is so, so please be more conscious about your public statements. Do not just sort of say, yeah, we're so sorry about the poor black, brown and, and, and white and Asian people, but you know, I'm going to get myself a Tesla, you, you know, like, like that's, that's, that's just really disingenuous. And, and, and it continues that sort of paternalistic top down um, praxis that we have been um, uh, uh, observing from a lot of these bigger organizations again for, for, for decades, for decades. And, and, and when, when there still seems to be an inability to, to ch- change how you operate, you know, the apologies have we we're we're done hearing the apologies, right? They, they they fall on empty ears now. At this point, they're not mistakes anymore. They have to be referred to as what they are, uh, which is a, a function of willful ignorance. Well, you mentioned the Hemez uh, principles uh, for democratic organizing. First is inclusive. You, there needs to be inclusiveness. Uh, second, emphasis on bottom-up organizing. Third mentioned is let people speak for themselves. Uh, four, work together in solidarity and mutuality. Five, build just relationships among ourselves. Uh, we need to treat each other with uh, justice and respect. Six, commitment to self-transformation. Um, we mm. must change. Uh, uh, we must uh, walk our talk. And um, yes. you, you, you mentioned in your letter, I, 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 if I remember correctly, uh, the tendency uh, for some organizations to appear committed to uh, uh, environmental justice uh, in part by, by putting uh, bios and pictures uh, that might uh, seem diverse or, or you, you know, but it, it's, it's really, they're not, they're not walking the talk. Who else is speaking out about this? I mean, is how how widespread is this disappointment uh, with the Inflation Reduction Act in the environmental justice community? Yeah, I, I mean, so I, I of in in the spirit of Hamez, I will let people speak for themselves. But I, what I will do is I will, um, you know, I would refer you to statements put public facing statements put out by the Indigenous Environmental Network, who put out a beautiful statement breaking down what all the problems with the Inflation Reduction Act are and why they are posing. Just, just a beautiful, beautiful um, 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 statement uh, written um, uh, by the, the great Jordan Harmon. She's a brilliant uh, policy analyst with IEN, as well as uh, uh, Tamara Gilbertson, uh, uh, two of the smartest people I've ever met and who, who I love to work with for that reason. Um, the Climate Justice Alliance also put out a, a forward-facing statement ex- uh, expressing their, their massive disappointments and massive concerns and their um, opposition to the bill as, as a result. Um, I do I do want to read something you wrote um, uh, in, 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 in your letter because I think it, 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 it has a lot of punch. 
You said the so-called Inflation Reduction Act and the process that led to its development has elucidated the undeniable fact that the climate movement, and you put movement in quotes, quotes is less, less than an exercise of jo- social justice and more frequently a continuation of the white supremacy, patriarchy, and colonization that formed the interlinked root causes of climate justice. Yeah. So, I mean, if we go back to um, one of the landmark um, pieces of environmental reporting, uh, 1987 Toxic Wastes and Race, that was uh, produced by the United Church of Christ under the leadership of the great Dr. Benjamin Chavez, who, of course, coined the phrase environmental racism while fighting um, um, polychlorinated biphenyl um, waste in Warren County, North Carolina, a majority Black community, which is, is where some people say this is where the environmental justice movement, you know, kind of, you know, had its beginning, right? Some people um, credit the Montgomery uh, bus boycotts with the spark and engendering the, the, the Civil Rights Act. And uh, th- this this movement in Warren County really got the environmental justice movement started. And in that report, they have a definition of racism that I always use. I mean, because I think it's as germane in 87 as it is now in 2022. And it, it says that racism can be practiced intentionally and unintentionally, as well as consciously and unconsciously. And 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 this this is this is the the, the climate community you know to a T. It, it, it is still very white dominated, white affluence um, 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 dominated, um, very very top down. Um, and and this Inflation Reduction Act just just proved that. I mean, the people who are you know given the space to to uh, showcase the narrative on this are majority white people, right? Doctor Stokes, Bill McKibben, Michael Mann, you know, are are given like sort of like all of the top spots to transmit what's in this bill and what's not in this bill. And they are largely citing the science and the, and the data of, of sci- white scientists, right? I mean, so when we're uh, peddling the idea, oh, this is going to result in 40% reduction, who, who wrote that report? You know, who, who did the, the analysis on that report? Was it people from frontline communities? Was it indigenous people, black people, poor people? No, I, I would posit that, that, that it isn't. And so that, that's the white supremacy end of it, right? Um, the fact that it is a very white male dominated, there, there's the patriarchy, you know, end of it. And then women can, can also exercise the patriarchy, just like black people can exercise white supremacy, to be clear. Um, and then the, the, the colonization aspect of it is this idea that it is okay. Okay, that you are okay with the fact that the, the, the vast majority of the EJ investments, quote unquote investments, are in the form of competitive block grants. So now, and I've said it before, you're, you're forcing um, environmental justice communities to enter into a social justice hunger game situation where the odds when it comes to money are usually not ever in their favor to compete with each other for the right to clean air, clean water in a healthy environment, that's colonization. That is literally what, what, what the colonizers did to pit indigenous people in Africa against each other, indigenous people here in Turtle Island against each other in Asia, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that, that's, that's what, I, what I meant by that. And, and, and this unconsciousness, this unconscious racism is, is, is hurting the consciousness of what um, a, a climate community that I believe has aspirations to actually become a movement. But it, it's the great Angela Davis who, who herself said, we have the makings of a movement, but, you know, but, but we're not a movement yet because of these things that we're still doing to each other, the way that we're operating, the exclusion, the ostracization, the paternalism, you know, the, the fact that that, like you're going to uh, give us facts about what's best for us that we did not get to peer review. We did not get to ground truth. 
Um, that 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 is a that's that's literally what I meant by that. And I use those three terms specifically because the root causes of the climate crisis are white supremacy, patriarchy, and colonization. We've got to get to the root causes. It's not just about the pipelines and the emissions. It's about the systems of oppression that allow for those um, emissions to predominantly happen in frontline communities, for those pipelines to bifurcate sovereign indigenous territory, and who is uh, bearing the brunt of the adverse impacts. Moving forward, is there hope that these concerns can ever be addressed uh, and 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 therefore, we could have uh, a, a true climate movement. Yes, I um, am a big, big fan of Rebecca Solnit, one of the the great literary minds of our time. Um, her writings on hope um, are more salient than ever, and and more voracious than ever. Right, you know, uh, uh, Sister Solnit says. Hope is not some uh, a lotto ticket, like, you know, underneath your couch cushion. It's an ax, right, that you knock doors down with. So um, in, in that articulation of hope, I am very, very hopeful. Um, it, we have no other choice. But that hope is somewhat contingent on the consciousness, the moral consciousness and the clear consciousness of, of, of certain groups that have more access to levers of power, at least um, um, legislatively, right, and, and, and politically, being having this the will to exercise, you know, equitable and just national climate platform. I, 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 I stated that before. Um, I, I tried to bring it up on my computer. But if you just read some of the commitments that are made in that platform, those are your words, y'all. No one put a gun to your head. It wasn't a shotgun wedding uh, of a marriage between uh, environmental justice and, and mainstream environmental groups. You willingly sign this. You put your name on it, but then you're not following through. <sighs> that 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 is a a a an omission of integrity, and and so that the, my, my, I, I'm very very hopeful. But but the, but hope needs assistance. Right. Hope also needs to be given reassurance that we're going to follow through with our words, that we're going to follow through with our public statements that we made in 2020. Um, if we put Hamed's principles on our website, that we're actually going to commit to not just regurgitating Hamez, but we're to, to exercising Hamez. These principles were, were not developed. People gave their lives, you know, their time, you know, their energy to, to put these things together, um, not to see them tokenized. And, and like I said, dangled around as ornaments, right? They, they, they are, they are to be a, a the Hamas principle is a living document, you know, to, um, um, to, to enhance a living organizing process that, that, um, increases inclusivity. And when we have increased inclusivity, better things happen, right? One of, uh, uh my, teachers, uh, great Mickey Kashtan says that trust is developed when people do successful things together, right? So let us do successful things together. That will increase our hope. And when our hope is increased, our resolve is increased. When our resolve is increased, our powers increase. And then, you know, we, we can go do what we really have to do, which is not this inflation reduction act. This is not a compromise bill. It's a capitulation. And, um, as our good friend, uh, uh, uh Brett Hartles from the uh, Center for Biological Diversity said, uh, and Bernie Sanders quoted him on the Senate floor, it's a suicide pact. And, and we have to do much, much better. So I am, I am very, very hopeful. Um, but, um, I don't want to say, but, and that hope does come with, with some conditions that I hope, <laughs> that I hope are, are, are met so that, so that we really can become the movement that I think we have the potential to become. And your, your, uh, reasons for resigning, uh, from 
evergreen action. You say, in a forthcoming piece on the harmful, pernicious, and iniquitous process that led to the so-called IRA, I offer, quote, when we have the courage and the fitness to look back on and really evaluate the IRA, it won't just be a question of what it's doing to hurt the physical environment, indigenous sovereignty, and the health of indigenous black, brown, and poor folk. It will also be a question of what this process made us do to each other and how we can hopefully, if possible, heal and regenerate. So I look forward to reading that. Uh, can you tell us where it may, we may find that in the future? Yes, um, I'm getting buzzed by uh, said editor about it as we speak. Um, it will be appearing in the uh, Black Agenda Report um, uh, website, uh, which, of course, is um, edited by the great uh, Margaret Kimberly. It's her birthday. Happy birthday, Sister Margaret. And um, um, I believe uh, she means for it to drop on wax later today after I <laughs> take care of some edits. And 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 I will definitely um, email it to you as soon as, as it does go live. Um, but I, 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 I was, you know, I'm really honored that the Black Agenda Report asked for this perspective. You know, um, they, they do want more Black voices, more Brown and Indigenous voices who are um, giving their take on, you know, the climate discourse and the climate polity. So, um, yeah, so, so so very, very soon after I live up to my commitments, speaking of commitments, and, um, you know, uh, that, that's what makes Sister Kimberly a good editor. She is very meticulous and thorough. <laughs> Well, whenever it's ready, uh, I you know, hopefully later today, we, 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 we would have time to put it in our show notes as well. So I also did want to ask you, you're in Columbia now uh, with the inauguration of the new president. Tell us about that. What's going on? Oh, what an incredible time to be here. Um, you know, I had the pleasure of meeting now Presidente uh, Petro about three years ago in D.C. Um, we hit it off. We kept in touch. Uh, my family down here are um, um, close allies and operatives in the PCN party, which is, of course, is the party of uh, Colombia's first Afro-Colombian uh, vice president woman, uh, the great Francia Marquez. And um, as so as their guests um, remained uh, here a bit longer to just have more conversations, more meetings and pitch in where I can and where I'm asked to um, with, uh, you know, getting this amazing and historic administration um, off and running. Um, um, you know, there, there, there are a lot of aspirational aspects to uh, their uh, platform for governance. And, um, you know, what I will say is that this this moment in Colombia is a result of principled struggle and and, and principled movement of, of Afro-Colombians, Afro-Indigenous Colombians, um, um, white Colombians coming together and, and really engaging each other in a righteous way, literally exercising this, this right here, what I'm uh, witnessing is the living Hamez, right? Just relationships, um, bilateral accountability, the way that, you know, even when there's um, um, conflict, the way that, you know, watching them sort of like navigate that conflict, it's, it's just a beautiful thing to see. I I feel like I am swimming in in turquoise water, which I was last weekend in Cartagena, incidentally, (laughs) I highly recommend people go check out Cartagena, great place. Um, 
And, and, and so um, you, you can still feel the excitement. Uh, two days ago was the conclusion of the annual Afro-Colombian Festival here in Cali. And uh, of course, uh, uh, um, uh, Vice Presidenta Marquez showed up. She danced with us. You know, I mean, it was it was it was surreal. I I, I was done at four thirty because I was like sleeping as I was standing up, and I was like, I have to go. And they were like, What are you doing? You know, to them it was like still midnight. You know, uh, that the vice president had left at like three thirty. You know, I I mean, and and I have friends who were like, Where did you go? I was like to bed, and and they were like, Oh, we didn't leave until eleven thirty. You know, the, the next day. So there's there's just so much jubilation. And you, you had mentioned um, earlier hope. You, you can see it in the eyes, especially of young um, um, Afro-Colombian uh, uh, women and young Afro-Colombian girls. They see Francia. They see themselves, right? I, I was a guest in, 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 in her home, like literally hours after she was sworn in. And, and, and you could just see her face of like, what the hell am I going to do with, with all of this space? I grew up in a two-room shack. Like, what, what is this? You know? And and remaining so humble and so available to the people in, in, in a way I, I've never seen in a lawmaker in my life. So um, and and of course, both um, uh, President De Pretro and and Marquez are, are ardent climate um, uh, justice activists and practitioners. Um, uh, Petro has pretty much uh, vowed to end oil and gas um, l- drilling here in Colombia um, and, and really making sure that there's a lot more indigenous input when we're talking about minerals that are necessary for things like solar panels, that they, they, they are included, that um, um, they're um, a part of the process um, as, as well. So and, and you know, even in his, in his inaugural speech. <sighs> It was long. Uh, anyone who knows uh, President Petro um, knows that he can be long-winded. Um, but um, it, it was about an hour-long uh, inaugural speech, and about fifteen to twenty minutes was were, were dedicated to the climate crisis. And and that, to me, you know, you know, showed me something. He had dignitaries and presidents from other um, South American nations on the stage next to him and looked to them when he was talking about climate change. He was like, are you going to be my partner in this? Like, like, we have to be partners in this. Bolsonaro wasn't there, but, you know, uh, <laughs> that's a whole other story. But but everyone else there, you know, you, you could see them affirming. Yeah, like, you know, let, let's do this. Let's make um, Latin America um, a beacon for for what regenerative economies can look like. So just just so great uh, uh, being here. Um, you know, got another uh, uh, um, week or so here, and then um, off uh, off, and I'll be back later in the fall to continue assisting PCN and the vice president. So I'm very excited. Uh, I, I guess you know we were talking about hope, and I guess maybe it, it looks like you see a little there. You know, uh, oh, hundred percent, yeah. We also, uh, on, on one of our previous shows, talked to Alejandro Parra, who's Chile, and talked about the new constitution that's being formed, which uh, they are really emphasizing indigenous rights and uh, the environment as well. So there seems to be a lot happening in the global south. Yeah, well, you know, they, they, they say that the, these are developing nations. I say I agree because they are developing climate policies and they are developing solidarity and they are developing tr- truth co- truth commissions. They're developing. I, uh, uh, my second day here when I got here, um, I was a part of a global discussion on reparations with um, Africans from across the world and indigenous people from from across the continent. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're developing solutions. That's why they're developing nations. Well, and that's always been an interesting term to me, developing nations. It's like, you know, there's some sort of standard. And, and, and then when it comes to climate, maybe some of us are a little overdeveloped in a sense, right? 
100%. I mean, um, you know, Nicaragua, where uh, my son and his mother spent a good portion of the year uh, where, where she worked, um, he, he was actually born in Nicaragua on an island called Ometepe Island, um, which is in the middle of the lake. And it, it was really interesting. I was down there um, when there was a bit of an uprising uh, against the president um, and um, there was fuel shortages. And at one point, because like fuel couldn't get to the island, Ometepe, it was like for a few days entirely powered by renewable energy. Nicaragua is already close to uh, producing half of its energy from renewable, for true renewable um, sources, wind and solar, um, as where I, I don't even think we're at, uh, at 20% yet in, in the United States, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, they're developing renewable energy. <laughs> they're developing, they're developing um, good climate policy and, and they're serious about it. Um, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, with everything that we're seeing, in the um, Eastern European theater right now, people are understanding it's probably not a good idea to be emboldened to this this poison that that also engenders geopolitical conflicts and puts people in harm ways, including workers, of course. Well, Anthony Karifa Rogers Wright, thank you so much for joining us at Breaking Green. I really appreciate uh, being on and hope to see you again. You have been listening to Breaking Green a Global Justice Ecology Project podcast. To learn more about Global Justice Ecology Project, visit globaljusticeecology.org. Breaking Green is made possible by tax-deductible donations by people like you. Please help us lift up the voices of those working to protect forests, defend human rights, and expose false solutions. Simply text GIVE, G-I-V-E, to one. 716-257-4187. That's 1716-257-4187.